0: Gentlemen, welcome to Talking the Cure, the brand new Hogan Lovell's Life Sciences podcast. Today, we sit down with the A and Rob to talk about the challenges around clinical trials, for example, when it comes down to the usage of digital tools. In addition, as Rob is based in LA and the A in Brussels, obviously, we are going to flag the differences between the US and the European Union. As we are going to hear each other after this, do some housekeeping. With further ado, let's sit down and talk the cure.
1: Hi, this is Rob Church. I'm a partner at Hogan Lovells in the firm's uh, FDA pharmaceutical and biotechnology practice group. I also lead the firm's clinical trials working group. My practice is mostly focused on helping uh, drug and biotech companies bring their new products through clinical trials and hopefully to FDA approval. And with me is Elizabeth Ann Wright from our Brussels office.
2: Hello, I am also a partner in the life science practice. I'm based in Brussels and our practice in Brussels is somewhat unusual very specialized practice that advises both pharmaceutical and device clients on the whole route of uh, life cycle from determination, of the classification of the product, clinical trials of the product, conformity assessment of medical devices, marketing, authorization of pharmaceutical products and promotion of market, uh, post-market of both.
1: Great. So we've got a few topics I think that we'd like to talk about today. Um, the first is uh, we're getting a lot of questions from our, our clients, uh, drug companies, contract research organisations, as well as uh, technology startups about the use of uh, digital tools in clinical trials and, in particular, using things like smartphone apps to collect data that can be used in, in clinical trials. And I know within the, uh, the FDA world, this has become sort of a hot topic. You know, a lot of clients are asking us questions about how these types of systems are regulated by FDA. Are they medical devices? Do they need to undergo any kind of a specific validation? How do companies ensure the integrity of the data that that's being collected? And so we're providing a lot of advice on that. Elizabeth Ann, why don't you start from your perspective, uh, from how the European authorities view this?
2: Well, this is becoming a very sensitive topic in the EU. It has particularly come up over the last couple of months, not only in determination of the appropriate classification of software, but in the scope of uh, GCP inspections by the European Medicines Agency of pharmaceutical companies, pre-authorization. They have been questioning the validation and the suitability of software that has been used part of a clinical trial. They have been asking for design history files for the software. They have been asking for variations. They have been asking the pharmaceutical companies to provide this data. And it is proving a challenge because mostly the, the software is third party software that has been bought by the pharmaceutical company. It has been used over a period of a number of years as a long-term pharmaceutical clinical trial. So the software has also undergone iterations. So it is very difficult for the pharmaceutical company and obviously the software provider to provide the information that the inspectors are requiring. Failure to provide that software can actually cause the entire marketing authorization process for the medicinal product to grind to a halt.
1: Yeah, no, thank you. And in the U.S., I think, um, you know, companies are facing a lot of kind of similar types of questions. Um, The first is that FDA has gotten more vocal in the last couple of years about making sure that that any kind of electronic systems used in clinical trials comply with the uh, the agency's regulations at 21 Code of Federal Regulations, Part 11. It's FDA's rule on electronic signatures and electronic records. Although the agency's regulation has been in place for more than 20 years at this point, I think there's still a, a lot of uncertainty as to whether it applies to these types of systems used in, in clinical trials. Um, although, recently, within the last couple of years, FDA has actually issued more guidance on this. And I, I think, kind of within the industry, people are starting to realize that they do need to go through a, a very thorough, formal validation process for any kinds of systems that are used to collect clinical data, even if it's an app on a smartphone. In addition to that, our uh, medical device experts here at the firm also frequently look at these systems just to uh, determine whether or not they may be regulated as medical devices as well, which I think is kind of crosses over into some of the things that you were talking about there, Elizabeth. Then. Another one of the topics that we've been getting a, a lot of questions on from our, our pharma clients uh, relates to the uh, the clinicaltrials.gov database in the United States, where it's, it's now a, an official requirement to post not only uh, information about new studies that are being conducted, but then when the study is completed, there's also a requirement to post the study results on clinicaltrials.gov. And uh, so we get a lot of questions from clients uh, more and more recently, it seems like, asking about whether companies who have not whose uh, products have not yet been approved still need to post the results of their studies. In many cases, I think companies are nervous to have a lot of this pre-approval information about their drugs in the public domain. They'd rather wait until the, the drug is approved. And uh, fortunately, there there is a process by which companies can seek an extension, posting the results of their studies on the uh, ClinicalTrials.gov database. But there is a kind of a limitation of how much time you have in order to request this kind of extension or or postponement of having to post your results. And so this is really kind of where where we've been getting involved more and more, where uh, a lot of companies, uh, for whatever reason, sometimes uh, miss the deadline to uh, request an extension from uh, FDA to uh, post their results on clinicaltrials.gov. And so, you know, we've been getting involved more and more often to help companies try to figure out, you know, what they can do if they've missed this deadline, you know, suddenly they're they're in a position where they have to post their study results before approval. Um, The other thing, just just briefly to to mention on this, is that um, we've also been getting quite a number of of, uh, questions from clients um, around the, the time of submission of a new drug application or a biologics license application which now requires the submission of a, a particular certification along with the the application saying that the company has complied with all of the requirements of clinicaltrials.gov and so you know i think this is creating some some anxiety in some companies when they realize that maybe they've they've missed a deadline or not posted all the information and then they have to submit this kind of formal written certification fda saying that they they have in fact complied with these laws so we're trying to help you know, a number of our clients kind of navigate their way through that. So Elizabeth Ann, I'm just kind of curious if there's kind of you know similar concerns being raised over in over the European Union these days.
2: There are not so far, but there will be. In 2014, the clinical trials regulation was adopted. This was intended to overhaul the current clinical trials legislation. Five years later, it is still not entered into force. We are not even clear when it will. It may be in 2020, but the procedures that relate to this have not yet been completely established. The people of the medicines agency moving from London to Amsterdam were among the reasons that slowed it down. But when the regulation does come into force, it will impose very similar obligations to those that clinicaltrials.gov impose. That means that clinical trial sponsors will be required to publish the results of their trials within short order after the logging of the data, and this will include a small summary that is aimed at the public, that they can understand without any kind of complex terminology and phraseology what the results of the clinical trial was. This is something that will create the same types of concerns as those that are already in the the US. our clients in the EU may find a certain amount of inspiration that can de- existing US legislation. There is that possibility. In the meantime, in the short term, the essential publication of clinical trial results is part of the access to documents procedures, particularly in the European Medicines Agency. There are two types. There are third-party freedom of information requests, and there are the powers of the European Medicines Agency to spontaneously publish materials about medicinal products, including the clinical trials. This information will, however, only ever be published after either grant of marketing authorization or publication of a decision refusing applications.
1: Great, thanks. The the next topic that I was hoping we could talk a little bit about, and I'm not sure how much of a you know, how much this comes up in your practice, but in, in the U.S., we're, we're getting a lot of questions these days on the so-called expanded access regulations that FDA has and a, and a new law that has kind of a, a similar intent, something called the federal right to try law in, in the United States. So just as a little bit, little bit of background on this, FDA has had for many years these uh, so-called expanded access regulations uh, we're, we're, under which companies can provide their drugs before they're approved to patients who are in serious need of, of those products. So it's sort of a, a pre-approval uh, processed to uh, provide drugs for treatment use before those drugs are, are approved. And, um, and these, these expanded access regs, like I said, they've been in place for, for many years. I think FDA, from what I've seen, has done a good job in terms of implementing them and working with companies to honor these uh, compassionate use requests. And But more recently, uh, just, just last year in 2018, Congress uh, passed and the president signed into law the, uh, the Federal Right to Try Act, which tries to accomplish something very similar, but the, the right to try law I think kind of the the big difference between that and the expanded access regulations is that under right to try there's there's no requirement to notify fda in advance of making uh, an investigational drug available to a patient whereas under expanded access uh the drug company or the doctor needs to specifically ask for fda's permission to make the drug available so we're getting a, a lot of questions these days just about kind of how these these two these two kind of parallel tracks expanded access and right to try you know how they they work together when companies receive compassionate use requests, which of the two they should choose, you know, if, is, is one better than the other? Is, is it important to try to, for example, maintain kind of transparency with FDA by going through the expanded access process rather than right to try? So it's been an interesting you know process so far. I think, you know, from what we've seen, we have a lot of companies asking about the right to try pathway. But at, at least in our practice, we haven't really seen many companies try to try to go down that road. Instead they've been sticking with kind of you know the historical expanded access uh, pathway which I, I think most companies are at least for the moment more more familiar with and more comfortable with. So Elizabeth Ann, any kind of you know uh, perspectives from your side from, from Europe on expanded access?
2: We have the closest that we would have to that are the compassionate use processes that are have been established by the competent authorities of the individual EU member states. No two procedure is the same. There's a lot of variation between the authorities. The only EU-level uh, provisions are the provisions in the European, um, the Community Code of Medicinal Products, which permits the member states to give access on application to non-authorized products during their authorization process. As I say, it varies very widely from one member state to another. You don't really have the equivalent of the right to try but we do have the compassionate use uh, access, but it is not an EU level procedure, it's a national procedure, and some member states embrace it, some are at least ambivalent to the approach. Mm -hmm. So, the last topic is a topic that is EU specific and is causing a great deal of confusion, I think is the most charitable way we can describe this, and that is the implications of GDPR for clinical trials. If one were to read the GDPR, it looks clear, it says that anyone who has their data being collected must give their prior consent to collection. Um, This is particularly important when it comes to personal health data, the sort of data that would be collected from individuals as part of a clinical trial. There is, however, a certain level of confusion, for want of a better word, between member states. Some member states are of the opinion that, in fact, patients are not capable of giving their consent to the collection of their data as part of the clinical trial. I have to admit, I am completely bemused by this approach. Any patient participating in a clinical trial is legally obliged to give their consent to participation in the trial, and yet the data commissioners have recently published an opinion in which they said that the individual patients were not capable of giving their consent to the collection of the data. This is something that I really struggle with, I particularly struggle with it, given that we have recently done a a little straw poll of the approach of all 28 EU member states, in which we discovered that the vast majority of the national laws of the individual member states requires the consent of the patient to the collection of their data. The fact that we seem to some way be moving towards circumstances in which the patient's data is collected on the basis of the legitimate interest of the company, is, from my mind, something that that could create discussion in the future, given that the legitimate interest of the trial sponsor seems to be a rather unusual basis for collecting of the data. First part. The second part, of course, that goes with that, is the question of secondary processing, that is, using the data collected during a clinical trial for a reason other than the reason for which it is collected. Again, reading the GDPR as it is written, it suggests that if this is going to happen, the consent of the patient to the secondary processing should be given. And yet we are increasingly seeing an interpretation that goes back again to the legitimate interest of whoever it is that's using the data, which means that the patient's consent is not necessary. Again, there does seem to be inconsistencies of interpretation uh, between authorities, between sponsors, and as to what the GDPR says, we could very well find a great deal of debate and discussion in the future on that. And from our view, it is really important that this matter is understood and determined what the most appropriate approach is, because we could see for clinical trials what we have seen for safe harbor, the procedure whereby U.S. companies could export data from the EU to the U.S., in the judgment of the European court in Schrems, the court said, this is not a valid procedure. It didn't say that the safe harbor was wrong. What it said was, there was no legal basis for the safe harbor. We may very well see a similar approach when it comes to the interpretation of the GDPR.
1: All right, well, well great. Thanks very much, Elizabeth Ann. I'm really glad Pleasure. we had the chance to sit down and talk about this. So thanks to everybody for listening.
0: So that's it for today. If you have further questions for EA and or Rob, reach out to them via homelevels.com. In addition, so you're not missing out on any information regarding industry developments, as well as our activities in this sector, follow us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. Leave a like, leave a comment, links are in the description. And finally, thank you for tuning in today. We're going to return with more in about two weeks. So please join us again when we're talking the cure.